This is the Sermon Podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. Second reading is from Galatians. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if, in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Holy wisdom, holy word. From the life of Jesus today is found in Luke's gospel. It's found in the seventh chapter. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of ointment, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. She continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this happening, he said to himself, if this man were actually a prophet, He'd know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Which of them do you think will love him more? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, you've judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She's been anointing my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she shows the greater love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with Jesus began to say to themselves, who is he that forgives even sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went on throughout the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits, Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Herod Stuart Chusa, Susanna, and many other women who had provided for them out of their resources. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Grace and peace be yours through our risen Lord Jesus. Seven weeks on the six chapters of Galatians. That's about five pages in your Bible. That's it. A little less if you've got a pocket Bible, a little more if you're doing large print at this point. But it's about five pages, and it might be fun and important for you to kind of sit down and read it all in one writing. All in one sitting. That's how Paul wrote it. Just got out his pen, fired off this letter to the Galatians. And if you got a letter in the mail, that's what you would do. You would read the whole letter. You would not chop it up into five parts and get together with a bunch of other people and read a little part of it every week on Sunday. Today we're in the second chapter. Paul is describing for the church in Galatia what has to be one of the all-time family feuds of the Christian faith. Here's the fight. The church starts in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is a Galilean. He's born in Bethlehem. And yes, he goes to all those places. But, but the story is primarily happening in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. And in Jerusalem, Jesus takes on the sins of the world. That is the blame for everything else that everybody has done. And so they kill him. They kill him. They crucify him. But he won't stay dead. And he rises from the dead. And risen from the dead, he tells his disciples that I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem. I don't want you to go anywhere else until the Holy Spirit comes down on you. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to be my witnesses. And so that's what they do. They stay in Jerusalem. And for 50 days, they stay there until the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, they receive the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people are added to the church in one moment. Those first 3,000 church people were all Jews. They'd come from all over the Middle East because they were religious Jewish people. They'd come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. They valued, they loved the ritual of Judaism. So the church, the first church, instantly is A, a big congregation, and B, it has a homogenous cultural background. A whole lot of that cultural background, that tradition is tied up in what they ate. That's called kosher. It's also tied up in who you eat with. And that's also called kosher. 
And according to the law of Moses, you were to eat kosher things and you were to eat them with kosher people. Which presented a huge problem to the early church. Because the Eucharist, the sharing of a meal that we do in remembrance of Jesus, is just that. It is a meal. So, um, big 3,000 member church. And I don't know what they called that first church, but my guess would be First Jewish Church of Jerusalem. They took kosher very seriously. And before someone could come and eat the meal with them, they had to convert. And if you were a woman, that meant covering your head. It meant cooking kosher meals. It meant giving up your adornment and your jewelry. If you were a male, it meant that you had to be circumcised. So in order to eat at the Lord's table in first Jewish church in Jerusalem, you had to not only believe in a resurrected Jesus, not only believe that he's present in and at this meal, but you have to keep all of that Jewish tradition. That's how the Eucharist was done in Jerusalem. And since that's where the church began, that was the norm. The norm for the first 15 to 100 years of the church's history. But then there is another church in Antioch. Antioch is a large, cosmopolitan seaport city about 250 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about five times bigger than Jerusalem, and it's deep in pagan Gentile country. For some of you, it might be helpful to think of it as like Ann Arbor. (laughs) Paul started the church in Antioch. And because they weren't Jewish by tradition or culture, they did things differently than the church in Jerusalem. In Antioch, Gentile converts did not have to become Jews. In Antioch, Jewish Christians ignored the kosher regulations. In Antioch, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians ate the meal together. They shared the Eucharist together every time they shared. And everybody pretty much just ignored that part of the law of God. I remember this like it was yesterday. I, I, I once was driving down the interstate coming home late on a Saturday night from the Naval Academy where my son was at. And I was listening to the radio and I like to listen to, to kind of country preaching and, and cause it's kind of inspiring sometimes. But I, I was laughing so hard that I literally had to pull off the side of the road. This is what the pastor's refrain was. The problem with this world is that too many people are reading scripture with human eyes. And I remember thinking, well, what's my other choice? (laughs) What other choice do I have? We all pick and choose. We always have. We do now. We always will. The church in Antioch, founded under the radical influence of the Apostle Paul, and for the sake of reaching others with the love of God in Christ Jesus, disregarded part of Scripture, part of law. I'm not certain we're really able to grasp how big a deal that was. But it was big. It was really big. It's a brawl. It's a fight. And it lasts for years. When European Lutherans left their homelands to come to the U.S., we wrestled with all kinds of 
questions. Uh, and I'm old enough to remember some of how we dealt with that. Uh, how much do you have to believe to come to the Lord's table? Do you have to speak German? Finnish? Norwegian? How Lutheran do you actually have to be? How much of the catechism do you have to memorize? In the 70s and 80s, the big discussion was how old do you have to be to come to the table, as if age were the thing. In the 80s, we solved this question, female hands can consecrate the elements. And in the teens, we've just solved that LGBT hands can consecrate the elements. My point is that the conflict between Antioch and Jerusalem over the law is a big deal. And we know that from experience. So back to the story. Uh, One of the two main leaders of the church in Jerusalem hears what the Holy Spirit is doing in Antioch. Peter, he hears that and he gets kind of excited about what God is doing up there with those pagans. And so he uh, he decides he's going to go for a visit. And, and at first, when he's there, he just gets wrapped up. He recognizes the Holy Spirit. He gets excited about what they're doing. He takes part in everything. He shares the meal with the Gentiles in Antioch in violation. He was aware of it, of the law of Moses. And get this, he likes it. And he tells them he likes it. And then something happens. And this is where it would be great if we had like the Jaws music. There's another leader. Number two leader in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, mentioned several times in Scripture, but in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Jesus has a brother. That would be like news to some, some people even today. And I'm not going to go there, but it does or should mean something for a Roman Catholicism's doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Jesus has a brother. And that brother, James, is trading on his resurrected brother's popularity. And he is arguing for keeping the tradition of Judaism. And James hears what Peter is doing up there in Antioch. And some nastiness starts to ensue. Name-calling. Paul fires back, calls them not fundamentalists. That word hasn't even been invented at that point. He calls them, brace yourself, the circumcision faction. And when James' cronies go up to Antioch and Peter sees them, he backpedals. He suddenly starts to worry about the law. Once he realizes that not everybody's going to agree with him, once he realizes that social media is out there, once he realizes that people are going to know and they're going to find out, he changes his mind. He backs off. He gets public suddenly about, look how I keep the law. He avoids the Gentiles. He eats only with the right people. And predictably, Paul explodes. He reads the riot act, calls him everything except a nice person. Now, even those of you who hate conflict, can can we agree that there might be some things that would be worth having conflict about? Paul and 300 years later, the church who canonized his letters as scripture thought that this was one of those things. Who belongs at the table of the Lord? What credentials are required to eat with Jesus? 
On one side, you've got Peter, whether out of conviction or political expediency, we don't really know, but he relies on the observance of the law, only the righteous, only kosher, only the pure. And on the other side, Paul, who knows from experience that he never got one single ounce of peace out of the law. And in the resurrection of Jesus, something new has happened. So Paul insists that because of Jesus, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that this part of the law, this part of Scripture, no longer applies. And he's not willing to back down. And he tells that to Peter face to face in front of everybody. And in the end, Paul won. Because he was right. This is how we know Paul was right. Because of the story in our gospel reading today. Jesus is the guest of a Pharisee. Now you can sit with that for a long time. But for now let's just say Jesus must have kept kosher. Jesus must have been circumcised. Jesus is the guest. He's welcomed. He's included. He's a guest of a Pharisee. Which means that the house, the meal, everything connected to it were kosher. No Pharisee would ever do anything otherwise. And at the same time, you got this meal, but in a small town, in a culture without windows, without doors, whenever you have an out-of-town celebrity coming to share a meal, everybody kind of surrounds the house. Uh, not allowed to sit at the table, but, but allowed to gawk and, and allowed to at least, at least listen to the conversation. So, so picture a table where a Pharisee and some of Jesus' disciples are all with their heads leaning towards the table and their feet are on the outside. This is one of my favorite trivia questions whenever Lutherans, and we used to argue about this, the right way to take communion. Does it have to have a rail? Does it have to have a line? What the Bible actually says is they reclined at the table. I've never seen a Lutheran church with a bunch of lazy boys up front, so... Uh, so picture that they're, they're all their heads towards the center and their feet towards the outside and everything inside that circle. That's that's the kosher and the clean and everything on the outside is the unclean. And that's where the gospel story starts to get really exciting because here comes this woman. Notorious sinner, whatever that exactly means with perfume. And she goes inside the house. She goes right up to the edge of the circle. Now it's really starting to get titillating. And she rubs his feet, kisses his feet, rubs them with ointment, dries them with her hair. That's not really the point. The point is the scandal that Jesus allowed that to happen. Not only does he allow it, but he turns it into a teaching moment. Well, evidently, those who are forgiven the most will love the most. And from that moment on, the church included women. So much so that Paul lists them by name so that we would never forget. Not Paul, but Luke. Let me take it a little further because I think this is really important to Paul. Paul doesn't mince any words when he's dealing with that Pharisee. Or Simon Peter. Direct. Straightforward. This is not a mild-mannered confrontation. Jesus tells Peter that you have omitted everything that a gracious host would do. You're that bad of a host. 
And this woman, this woman is nice enough to do these things, and you are going to argue that she's not good enough to be with me at this table? The point is exactly the same in both of these stories today. Credentials do not matter when it comes to sharing the table with Jesus. No one is worthy. No one. No one is good enough. Period. Relying on your own strength, your own worthiness, your own credentials. Especially relying on some perverted sense of self-righteousness that says, at least I'm not as bad as he is or she is or they are, is to court the anger and confrontation of Jesus. Let me be clear about this part. The reason that the notorious sinning woman is closer to the kingdom of God than a devout religious Pharisee is not that it's better for all of us to be sinners. It's not. We are sinners. The reason a notorious sinner might very well be closer to God is because he or she is less likely to be hiding behind a wall of self-righteous morality or religious superiority. It's counterintuitive, this inclusion, peace thing. Peace is not found in some claimed virtue that I know God, I've earned the right, the favor, the presence of God, and therefore the attendant right to judge others and harm others and withhold from others. There's no peace in that. That's a source of conflict. According to Paul in Galatians and Jesus in Luke, that is to be fundamentally misunderstanding of the gospel and of ourselves as sinners so as to separate us from the peace of God. No one is worthy. No one has earned a single thing from God. And to pretend otherwise is to guarantee judgment. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. We can't work our way to heaven, much less to the table, and we can't sin our way out of it. Paul says, if justification, which means if God's love comes through the law, well then Jesus died for nothing. We don't live our lives in order to be loved by God. We already are loved by God, all of us. We love others because God first loves us. Amen. Amen.